readings are from Romans 1 verse 28 from last week to 2 verse 5. So that's 857 and 858 in the Pew Bibles. Since, we, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking, to let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarrelling, deception, malicious behaviour and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. Yet do they, they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you judge others do these to do these very same things, and we know that God is, in, sorry, and His justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do these same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see? that his kindness is intended to turn from your sin. But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself, for a day of anger is coming when God's righteousness, righteous judgment will be revealed. This St Andrews is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we come to look at your word this morning on our ongoing series in Romans, we ask again that for a revelation to our heart that only you can bring. Lord, we invite you here into this room. We know you're here, but we invite you to open our hearts to your word. We pray for me that as I come and bring this morning's message, which is on the topic of sin, not necessarily the most popular topic, I pray that, Lord, that there would be a graciousness and warmth that only you can bring through me. And I also pray for those who are here this morning, who, some of whom maybe have been in fundamentalist churches where sin was weaponized in a way to bring harm. I pray that this morning your grace would be upon them. And I also pray for those for whom uh, sin is a difficult topic, they uh, believe in the goodness of humanity, that, Lord, you would give a revelation from your word about the, uh, uh, the nature of humanity. Lord, only you can bring this balance and truth to our hearts. And so, Lord, we invite you to open your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're visiting this morning, uh, just that you know, we're ongoing, doing an ongoing series on Romans. So what we do here often at St. Andrews for at least a good chunk of the year is we pick a book of the Bible and look at it passage by passage. And this morning's topic is the very fun and exciting topic of sin. I, just, I can just imagine you going home after church, chatting with someone, you know, over a cup of tea. Oh, what was on today at St. Andrews? Well, the minister was talking about sin. Oh, anything else? No, no, just sin. Uh, just sin. Well, in my defense, it's what the Apostle Paul is writing about. Uh, and it's arguably, and is arguably the greatest, most influential letter ever written in human history. Romans 
Uh, even if you're not a Christian, uh, Romans plays a, a, a massive role in New Testament thinking and scholarly thinking throughout the last 2,000 years. And the Christian faith has 2.3 billion adherents. And so actually, even if you're not a Christian, understanding what this key thing is crucial. And for me as a believer, I don't just believe this is an intellectual exercise. I believe this is the Word of God. And it's, it needs to be opened up for our hearts. So uh, let's get into it. As I said last week, and forgive me for going over it again, but it's key to understanding today's message. From the Apostle Paul's perspective in the city of Rome, there existed two groups. One, the vast majority, 90% Gentiles, which is another word for saying non-Jewish Romans. Gentiles is what the Jewish people called them. And the second group is Jewish. I have to say, I find that quite funny. It's like me arriving in London, and there I am on my great OE, and I'm saying, well, in London, there are two groups of people. There's us Kiwis, and there's everyone else. You know, it's sort of a funny way of looking at it, but that's often the way the Jewish people did look at it. And Paul had partly split it this way because of the composition of the church there in Rome, that it had those two groups, the Jewish diaspora who'd come to faith in Christ, and also that second group of Roman pagans. The first group, the Gentiles, were pretty much, it's a generalization, uh, but I think it's a fair one, into idols. They were, as we looked at last week, many of them promiscuous, uh, with, as the London Museum, which I referenced last week, saying that most of the Gentiles of the first century AD having sexual partners of both sexes among the other sins. That's part of the context for that, that uh, challenging, tough text that we looked at last week. But also, uh, Paul's sample of sins was true of this society. Their lies became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. Sounds like the parliament, doesn't it? They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. They disobey their parents. They refuse to understand and break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. Now, it, let's to be fair to Rome. Rome in the first century, the Pax Romana was a thing. There was a prosperous society, powerful Roman government. There were aqueducts, amazing technology, colosseums were built. It was amazing. There was lots of wonderful, amazing things where the image of God and the creativity of humanity. But those same places where the colosseums were built had slaves in the middle of them getting killed for entertainment. Are you with me? There was both the image of God and some wonderful creativity, but also uh, some things that were not uh, so good. So, of course, not everyone was doing the things in that list, but this list was broadly true of Roman society at the time of Paul's letter. And so the second group, remember the first group is the Romans, the Gentiles. Well, the second group, which is the Jewish diaspora, they, with their love of God's law, understandably had a judgmental attitude for the wickedness that was all around them. They judged their pagan neighbors. It's fascinating having a look at what the rabbis were writing about in their sermons in the first century AD. And the letters that people would write to their sons as they were going to head into, off to Rome. This is uh, an example. Just imagine their father writing this to their son as they're going off to Rome, or perhaps 
perhaps leaving uh, Geraldine to go to Auckland. This is what, uh, was, what was said. And you also, my son Jacob, remember my words and keep the commandments of Abraham your father. Separate yourself from the Gentiles, the Romans and Greeks. Do not eat with them and do not perform deeds like theirs. And do not become the associates of theirs because their deeds are defiled and all their ways are contaminated and despicable and abominable. You can just imagine a person saying, you're leaving Geraldine to go to Auckland. Well, don't mix with those terrible Aucklanders because you know what they're up to. That was the sort of thing uh, that, that was the sort of thing that you would see often in the sermons uh, in the synagogues of the first century. Going to Rome as a faithful Jew, but be careful of the wicked Romans. Don't eat with them, spend time with them because they are bad. So in the church in Rome, they had these two groups with these two backgrounds, the religious Jews and the Roman pagans. And people from both groups had come to faith in Christ, and Paul was writing this letter to them. So you can imagine that as Paul's letter arrived in Rome and is read out for the first time to these different house churches, and Paul starts by condemning the pagan world and its evil, he was following, get this, the well-worn tradition of all of the Jewish rabbis before him. And that the Christians who'd come to faith from a Jewish background would have gone, I've heard this before. That's right, Paul. We live in an evil, corrupt Roman world. Before we came to faith in Christ, our rabbis were telling us this. But thank goodness we're sons and daughters of Abraham. We're religious and we keep the law. So remember when you read Romans 1 and you're reading about Paul's condemnation of the sexual immorality and idolatry and all of that sin list, Paul Wells, well, this is perhaps putting it too strongly, but for lack of a bit of a word, he was setting up the Jewish law-keeping Christians in the church of Rome for a surprise. They knew that Paul was following the rabbis in the synagogue sermons who would have condemned the pagan world. They would have heard the injunctions not even to eat with the pagans. Stay clear. They're under God's judgment with all their filthy sexual and moral practices. So you can imagine, we're with you, Paul. We'll stay clear. The city Rome is sin city. And perhaps for the Jewish Christians with their background, as they heard that first chapter of Romans being read out, they were also looking down on their brothers and sisters in Christ, other members of the church in Rome who had a Roman pagan background with all of the goings-on that that infers before they'd come to faith as adults. But then Paul does something that no other Jewish rabbi ever did, totally different from all of the other writings that were going on in Judaism. Then he comes and says uh, 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 something incredible. And I suspect it came out of not just the, the, his Damascus Road encounter with Jesus Christ, but also as he reflected on his life as a rabbi, he was killing uh, Christians and all of the sins and brokenness. And Paul saw himself post-Christ as the worst of sinners. So Paul, who was this uh, uh, Jesus, who encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, zealous for the law, he came to realize that all humanity falls short of the glory of God, even Jews. Let's hear Paul as he takes no prisoners in his condemnation of Jewish religious hypocritical sinners who face the judgment of God. You may think that you can condemn such people. That's chapter one, right? You condemn all that sinless there. But you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. 
When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others by doing those things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see his kindness is intended you to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up the terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Wow, Paul, that's a way to win friends and influence people. He just let loose into the religious Jewish people. And he's saying, do you see, do you see, do you see what he's done here? He's just spent a significant time doing what, doing what all the other rabbis have done, damning the wicked world of Rome. That's chapter 1. And then he uses that very judgment that the religious Jews have done and say, you do the same things. You're just as bad and you have no excuse. You stand before God guilty as charged. In fact, because you're judging the Roman world and you know it's bad, you know it's bad, and, and then you do it anyway. You're doubly, you're doubly convicted. So being religious, putting on a good show, God sees through it. He knows what goes on in your hearts. Now, Paul's word aim here wasn't trying to say that the pagans in chapter 1 weren't bad. Uh, uh, or, you know, they, they were bad. It's just as bad as he makes it sound. But he was arguing that the religious background believers, judging others, but if they searched their hearts, they would see that they too are guilty before God. We're all guilty before God. And this is tough for me to personally take because I did grow up going to church. I, 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 mean, I was an atheist for a period of time in my teens, but in my late teens, I gave my life to Christ. And I really didn't do any of the bad things out there in society. And so inbuilt, you know, I've kept the moral law. So I think to myself, Paul, how can you say this? I'm not as bad as the Romans or the Aucklanders or other people out there. So I'm a good guy. I've never been drunk. Paul challenges my religious pride and is wanting me to think, am I really that different? Am I really? You were to see the worst things I said or have thought. Maybe I'm not that different. I'm a sinner too. In fact, by Jesus' standard, which, uh, which is entertaining sin in one's mind, I'm really completely guilty. So I know this, that the topic of sin is a sucky topic. It's a very difficult topic. So to help me out this morning, so I don't sound a whole amenity for 25 minutes talking about it, I decided to get the Alpha course to come and help out. And so this is the Alpha, Alpha course is, is run by Holy Trinity Brompton in London City, and every year, millions of people come. And so I thought, how, did the, how on earth did Holy Trinity Brompton talk about sin to young Londoners? Remember, thousands of young Londoners in their 20s and 30s are entering the Alpha Course in London every year, coming to faith in Christ, including uh, some people who are rugby stars, uh, uh, Man vs. Wild, and some other people came. to It was quite an interesting thing. And, so it's, and it's grown a lot of churches. So we're going to have a look at, and I quote the, this morning's text so this is a talk from the Alpha Talk. Uh, um, I have no idea. Why did Jesus die? Jesus, I should really know this. Big question for early in the morning, isn't it? Jesus died for people, other people. He's saving us. Was it Pontius Pilate probably got a bit jealous of Jesus getting all the birds, so... We all die. People die for different reasons. 
Uh, to, well, it, I think it was supposed to be like for our sins, wasn't it? Jesus died because people didn't agree with him. Well, probably fear is why he died more than anything else. Didn't he like sacrifice himself on the cross? So, it's his choice. Jesus died because of people's beliefs. That's up for discussion. <laughs> Everybody dies. No one lives forever. The cross is the symbol of the Christian faith. It's kind of like the logo of Christianity. About a third of the Gospels are about the death of Jesus, and much of the rest of the New Testament is spent explaining why he died. I found that when I understood why Jesus had died, when I experienced what his death had achieved for me, it changed everything. Why did Jesus die? Well, the answer is because he loves you. There's a verse in the New Testament where Paul says, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. You are loved. That's the message at the heart of the New Testament. And it's the message at the heart of this universe. If you had been the only person in the world, Jesus would have died for you. It's as personal as that. He loves you that much. His love for you is unconditional, it's wholehearted, it's continual. It's the greatest love you could ever imagine. And that's the reason for the cross. It's God's amazing love for you. And that understanding completely changed my life. But why was it necessary? What's the problem? You're created in the image of God. God loves you, he created you. That means you're God's masterpiece. There's something amazing about every human being, something noble, something magnificent. Human beings are capable of such extraordinary creativity, music, art, literature. God's made you creative because you're created in his image. Human beings are capable of great self-sacrifice, devotion, kindness. But certainly in my case, there's another side to the coin. We're also capable of bad stuff. You only need to open the newspapers to see that terrible evil going on in this world. But the world is more complex than just saying, well, there are these evil people and they're good people, because it's more mixed than that. People who are capable of great love and devotion and kindness can also do some bad stuff. I've done some bad stuff in my life that I deeply regret. I've, I've hurt people, people that I love. The way the New Testament puts it is like this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The word sin can sometimes make me think of religious guilt or things like luxury chocolates and ice cream. The phrase, this is sinful, has become synonymous with something enjoyable. I saw an advert for ice cream that said, it's so good, it's sinful. But sin in the Bible is much more profound and relevant to you and me today than we sometimes realize. We're not talking about accidental mistakes or eating too much chocolate, but our seemingly natural inclination to mess things up 
to break stuff like promises and relationships that we care about and even our own well-being. And often we look around at others and think, okay, I get stuff wrong, sure, but comparatively, I'm not that bad, right? There are people doing far worse things than me. And if we're honest, we've all done stuff wrong. You know, Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the glory of God was revealed in Jesus. And compared to him, we all fall a long way short. So you might say, well, in that case, we're all in the same boat. Why does it matter? But there are consequences to the things that we do wrong. And the New Testament describes the impact of sin in a few different ways. Just as the pollution of our environment is a major problem, Jesus said it's also possible to pollute your life, your heart. And this is the pollution of sin. The things we do wrong can spoil our lives. Sin poisons our relationships with one another. And it also spoils our relationship with God. The bad stuff in our lives is also addictive. Sin is powerful. Yeah, I resonate with what St Paul said. What I want to do, I do not do. What I hate, I do. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. So for example, if you take heroin for a sustained period, you'll become addicted. But it's not just hard drugs. It's also possible to be addicted to things like a bad temper, envy, arrogance, pride, selfishness, slander, sexual immorality. This is the slavery that Jesus spoke about that has this destructive power over our lives. There is something in human nature that cries out for justice. Love and justice are not opposed. When we hear about a child being molested or about an elderly person being brutally attacked in their homes, we long for the people who do these things to be caught and punished because we believe there should be a penalty for sin. But it's not just other people's sins that deserve to be punished, it's ours as well. But it's easier to think about other people's and less so about ourselves. St Paul said, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. The things that we do wrong create a barrier. It's a bit like when you fall out with someone you love. Like so there was the Alpha Course's uh, take to reaching young secular Londoners turning up to hear the Christian faith for the first time. And it's true to my heart. I'm often angry and quick to point out the faults of others. You know, I think of the politicians in Wellington uh, and the words that I've thought to describe some of the processes over the last decades. Very quick. But, oh, I'm so quick to forgive all of the mistakes and faults. Uh, and I'm slow to be moved to repentance over my sin. There's almost an inbuilt tuning up of what others do. It's magnified in my heart. And yet I downplay and blind to my own faults and sins. And this is what Paul was trying to do to, with these religious Jewish people. We've given that pagan list of sins. He was aiming to break through. And so this, this, this is the passage. I'm putting, using my own words and putting it uh, myself here. This is uh, this text. Alistair, you may think you can condemn such people, but you're just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they're wicked and should be punished, you're actually condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. You can put your name there. So yes, maybe not exactly the same things in my case, but if I'm honest, some of that list is exactly me. So what is God's response to this? God's response to religious hypocritical sinners such as myself 
is his same response as to the first list. It's patience, it's kindness, and eventually, if there's no repentance, it's judgment. Let's hear the word of God. This is what it says. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness has intended you to turn from your sin? So Paul was reaching out to his fellow religious Jews who had come to faith in Christ, were attending the church in Rome, but because of their religious upbringing, they hadn't done what the Romans had done, and they thought they were good, relatively speaking, compared to their neighbors. And then Paul sets them up, goes to the sin list in Rome for the first century, and they would have gone, yes, Paul, the city is sin central. Things are going to hell in a handbasket. Why has God not judged Rome? It's the wicked of wicked. And then God says, actually, it's God's kindness and mercy. And do you know what? It's a good thing God is kind and merciful because he's kind and merciful to all of our mistakes. Give them time to repent. And we're going to read this. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness has intended you to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up a terrible punishment for yourself, for a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I imagine with Paul's writing letters like that, it's no wonder he had his critics. If I said that over St. Andrews, I wonder how that would go down. But it doesn't matter what I think, it matters what God thinks. Is this true of St. Andrews? Are we prone to judge others, angry at others, but blind to our own faults? Are we prideful? Are we hypocritical? Do we exclude others that don't fit the mold but have our own faults? Are we storing up the wrath of God because of our spiritual pride and hardened hearts? Is this true to me this morning? Before I say it's not true, I need to recognize that in Jesus' prayer that he's given, a prayer that he's given all believers to pray, there is this clause, Father, forgive us for the sins we do as we forgive those who sin against us, or trespasses or debtors, depending on the version of the Bible. It seems to mean that Jesus believes that, we, that, that this could be a problem. So one of the key problems in Christianity is we can be tempted to judge others, but one of the powers of sin is his ability to block us from feeling remorse over our own sin, we feel it doesn't apply to us, but we're happy to judge others. Here, Paul was reaching out to stir a spirit of remorse within the church. Both the pagan background believers who'd come from that sordid background had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ, as well as also the religious Jews, getting them to cry out for forgiveness and that the fruits of repentance would be found in them. So Paul's bold take taking on the religious background believers in the, in, the, in the city of Rome was an attempt not to offend them, all right? though it may have offended some of them. It was an aim to stir up a spirit of repentance in people who are blinded by their own sin. My prayer is the Lord would do the same here at St. Andrews. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Uh, here in Paul's reading, as he, as he uh, turns the tables on a second part of the congregation there in the church in Rome. And Lord, while the topic of sin isn't necessarily the most fun or exciting topic, I pray that every believer here this morning wouldn't be looking at the sins necessarily of others, but that you would stir up within their own hearts areas where they have fallen short of your glory. And now in the silence of our hearts, Lord, we bring to you areas where we have failed you. And Lord, we repent of them in the, in the silence of our hearts. 
Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you that, Lord, your mercies and forgiveness is new every day. And we pray that the congregation of St. Andrews will be marked by a humility, not spiritual pride. It would be marked by a compassion to others and be marked by a holiness that only you can bring. That we would not celebrate sin or condone or endorse it, but that, Lord, that we would uh, ourselves be uh, moved by our own brokenness. And that, Lord, that moved by our own brokenness would lead us to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.